Well, good morning, Bethel. Didn't you just want to have church outside this morning? (laughs) Clearly your car is broken down or you couldn't find a campsite or, you know, something. So you're here. We're here together. Uh, This is, boy, one of those days you want to go outside and worship God. And I hope that you will after church, after we worship together here. Uh, Let's pray and we'll, we'll dive into the word together. So let's pray first. Father, what a blessing to uh, be able to gather together in this place as your children, as the people of God. We remind ourselves, Lord, we remind ourselves that this is not the church, we are the church. But we have to gather, we must gather because you are a God who is worthy of worship. His erring child he reconciled, we just sang. And because of that, we commanded one another in the hallelujah chorus chorus, that we must all praise God. Hallelujah. He has reconciled us and made us his sons and daughters. Thank you, God, for doing that. I pray now, Lord, that as we go to your word, that we would continue to worship you as we submit our lives to the transcendent God of the universe, the creator, the maker of all things, the one who has made us for himself. And so God, as we study your word, may we worship you because we're willing to lay our lives open again. I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text to us, that it would be clear that we might take it into our lives and allow it to change us and to form us. So give us good attention now, Lord. Give us good, crisp minds and open hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you take out your Bibles and open to the book of Psalms, we're gonna be in Psalm 1 this morning. And our series, of course, here, as you have on the slide in front of you, is Psalms Through the Summer. Really, really tempting to spell summer with a P there uh, for the alliteration value. Pastors are just, we're just wrecked for that, you know. Uh, but we didn't. Um, and again, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 1, so just keep that in front of you. Last week, I introduced to you the Scripture's own hymnal. Uh, which we call the Psalms. And I used that specific description to help us understand how the Psalms are arranged and how Israel used it in their corporate worship as well. Um, Within this particular hymnal that we're looking at throughout the summer here, there are several different genres of Psalms or different types of Psalms. And as I communicated last week, there's no, you know, definitive, exhaustive list. There are different lists that try to kind of help categorize and provide some shape to the kinds of psalms that we find in the scriptures. And on the back of your handout, I've given you 10. And this is basically what we're going to follow uh, through the summer. We're going to take a look at some of the different genres of psalm. And the first one there that you can see is uh, wisdom, a wisdom psalm. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Psalm 1. Uh, Last week I tried to show you also that the psalms are not just a random collection of Israel's worship. Uh, but it is a very purposeful collection. It is a very structured collection. Specifically, the Psalms are arranged into five books, and we kind of looked at that last week. Each one of those books corresponding to a season of Israel's history with the Lord. And so we can, and, and that particular list is also on the back of your handout. You can look at that. Uh, and so as you can see, Psalm 1 falls within book 1, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, the, the, the purpose in doing this is we're trying to keep, uh, keep our eyes on these two different points, uh, kind of like longitude and latitude. That way we'll get the most out of our study here. 
uh, we want to make sure that we identify what the genre of the psalm is. That is, what's the original setting behind it? What kind of a psalm is it? And, and uh, we want to take value from that. But additionally, we want to see where Israel placed it in their fivefold structure as they rehearsed in worship their story with God. And so we're going to really get almost two dimensions uh, of, of value uh, out of our, our study here. Again, this way we can learn from the original psalm and the occasion which prompted its writing, but then we can see how Israel used it to rehearse their worship. Uh, this morning is, is Psalm 1, uh, and some people would say that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really serve as an introduction to the whole of the book, uh, or almost like the cover of the hymnal, uh, and that's kind of what we, what we find here. As I stated earlier, Psalm 1 fits, of course, into book 1, which is uh, Psalms 1 through 42. That's the first book of the five-fold structure of Psalms. And that first book, if you remember, and it says on your handout, really focuses on the Davidic kingdom. Sort of those good times, those wonderful times when the kingdom was united, David was enthroned, and, and, and all things were well. Um, and again, I've already told you, this is also known as a wisdom psalm. That's the genre that it is. Uh, and there's only about a half a dozen of these throughout the psalms, so this is kind of uh, maybe one of those less common ones, if you want to think about it that way. So I think an important question to ask is, how would we recognize a wisdom psalm? How do we see that uh, as, as a part of the genre that we're looking at here this morning? And I think there's about four different things that we can see in a psalm that would help indicate that it's a wisdom psalm, that it fits within that genre. Uh, the first thing that I would draw to your attention is this. It would tend to look at who is skilled at living life. And that would be oftentimes indicated by one of two words, such as, blessed is, blessed is the man. And then we, if we see that, that phrase, we have a good sense that we might be within the wisdom genre here of a Psalms. Or better, better this than this. We would find that in the Proverbs especially, like we might find, uh, you know, better to live on the corner of a roof than with a quarrelsome wife, right? And this is indicative of a, of a wisdom passage. And so those are the first thing that we could see that might indicate that something is a wisdom psalm. They would talk about being skilled at life, blessed is this, or better is this. Another thing we might find is it would talk about uh, one's ability to make good godly choices, even in the everyday matters of things, such as your business and your friendships and, and what you choose to think about and the patterns that you practice. So it would talk about making godly choices. Thirdly, uh, another thing that, that might help us indicate or, or give the hint that something is a wisdom psalm uh, would be that it would present almost two paths, two optional paths to go down. Um, maybe some of you are poetry fans. I don't know. Do we have any poetry fans? Can I just see your hands? Oh, yeah, hosts of you. <laughs> some of you. I, I am a bit. Uh, I struggle with it. But here we have, uh, let's think about Robert Frost's uh, poem, right? Two, two paths diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and it has made all the difference. Th that would be an indicator of a wisdom kind of a poem. We're talking about two paths of life, corresponded and considered, and we find that kind of thing within the Psalms and frequently within the Proverbs as well. So that would indicate um, a wisdom genre. And then finally, when we find the features of either the fear of the Lord or the veneration of the Word of God, uh, you know, talking about the, the value and the profit of the word of God. Uh, these are also things that would indicate a, a wisdom psalm. So that's how we might recognize it. And you're going to see the psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 1, has all of these ingredients. 
And so let's read this together. Psalm 1-1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now for those of you, this is a beautiful summer day and it often gets warm in here in the morning. And for those of you who are already thinking about tuning out or drifting off into whatever it is is going to occupy your mind, uh, I want to give you sort of the bullet right up front. Here's the main thing. Here's what you've got to take from this passage. Blessed is the man who lives according to the word, not according to the world. That is the driving point. That is the central point of the psalm. That is what is trying to get us to see. Blessed is the man who lives according to the word, not according to the world. Um, And so our first point this morning is this. Blessed is the man who is in a right relationship with the Lord. And that's going to color sort of this first portion here. Uh, We probably need to stop and talk about this word blessed before we go too far because we might supply some meanings to it that might be inaccurate. Um, If I were to ask you, in fact, who is blessed? Who is blessed in life? As you look around you, who comes to your mind? How would you recognize them? Uh, I'm guessing that many of you would, uh, would first look at the outward circumstances of their life. How are things going for them? What does life look like from the outside? How much do they have? What do they have in their life? What's going well for them? These are the kinds of things that we might look for. But quite simply, that's too small. It's too narrow, and it's just a perception. Um, the blessed man is one who is really well off. It's one who is living life as God intended it. It's one who is not only living life as God intended it, but they're in right relationship with the Lord and they're experiencing joy and satisfaction and contentment knowing that they are pleasing the Lord and that he is, uh, he is pleased with them. Um, also, we need to understand that blessedness is not earned. It's, it's a gift from God. And that the source of blessing is God himself, not our efforts. And if we don't have a right understanding of this, uh, we can very easily slip into uh, a version of religious humanism. Right? Which is, I do right, I do well, I do all of the good things, and God is absolutely obligated to give me what I determine to be good. That's religious humanism. And it's alive and well in our world today. But that's not what blessedness is. It's not something that you and I can earn or manufacture. It is something we posture ourselves for. But ultimately, it's God-given. It's what he accords to us. Um, Blessedness also is more than just feelings, how we feel about our circumstances. Do we think things are going well for us? We have to look at more than our circumstances. We have to look at a holistic scope of one's life. And at the center of it is one who is in right relationship With the Lord. Blessing has to do primarily with God's estimation of us. And it speaks to our posture with Him, our position with Him. 
And so it's not a measurement of our talent or our money or our possession or the general ease of things in our life. We know that any person can just as easily be cursed with those things, right? That is not blessing. The blessed man has found favor with God. He rejoices in that and he's confident in God's estimation of him and no adversity can take away that blessing because he finds satisfaction knowing that he is pleasing God. Um, one, one sort of picture of this that came to mind, which may not be the best Fairbanks picture, actually, but nevertheless, I'm going to try it on you. First service didn't seem to mind, so we'll try it again. Uh, I think blessedness is almost like sailing. You've seen a lot of sailing up here. Uh, the person in the vessel postures themselves in such a way, they unfurl their sail so that it can catch the wind and be propelled along. They can't make it happen. They can't force it to happen. And I think similarly, the, the Christian, the follower of God, does the same thing. We posture ourselves through obedience and through righteousness and living as God has instructed us to live. And in doing that, we unfurl our sail. We posture ourselves such that the wind can fill it and propel it along. But it is ultimately God who is the source of that blessing. And so blessedness is not so much achieved as it is received and harnessed and enjoyed. How do we posture ourselves for it? Well, the passage speaks to that. Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And so the first answer really to how we would posture ourselves for this is there is an intentional avoidance of negative influences in our life. You guys have heard me say many times, so goes your fellowship, so goes your walk with God. So goes your fellowship, so goes your walk with God. There's an interesting thing that happens here in the passage too. We've talked about what makes, uh, what Hebrew poetry is and, uh, and how it's different than poetry that we would often look at today. We look at poetry thinking about rhyme and meter, but Hebrew poetry is really identified with a common Uh, feature known as parallelism where one statement is made and then another one comes after it that accentuates it in one way or another and sometimes two or three or four of those statements are made together that's hebrew that's hebrew poetry with with parallelism as its feature and we actually see that here in fact we have three progressive statements that sort of line out to communicate one truth and there's actually a progression to it i don't know if you can see that but first of all we have one who is walking in step with the wicked And then they're standing in the way. And then they're sitting in company with. So there is this this progression of worldly conformity. From accepting advice, being party to its ways, finally adopting its values and its attitudes. And we're cautioned against it. So we'll look at each one of these at a time here. The blessed man who is in right relationship with the Lord. He's careful about the counsel that he considers. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. The reality is that the world around us has a fundamentally different purpose and intention to life than does the life of the Christian. We're living for different things. And you cannot expect the advice of the world to bring about the purpose and the design of God. And I want to show this to you in some very clear ways, or I hope what will be clear. Uh, first of all, we're going to take a line from our own Declaration of Independence. And I'm not trying to diss it here, so don't, please don't you know, uh, throw anything at me for being unpatriotic or whatever. But 
Our world would say, our own declaration of independence would say that we have the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? But Jesus says, in this world, you'll have trouble. The world tells us, look out for number one. That's who's important. Jesus says, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Uh, The world would tell us, if somebody hits you, hit him back harder and more frequently, right? Or better yet, take him to court and become rich off of your momentary suffering, right? Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who curse you. The world tells us to make as much money as we can, as soon as we can, for as long as we can. Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The world says, if you're unhappy in your marriage, well, by all means, divorce. God wouldn't want you to be unhappy, right? The word of God says, what God has joined, let no one separate. The thing is, your advisors, your counselors, your confidants, your close friends, simply should not be those people who do not share your faith. They cannot be. Even out of their love for you, even out of their being in your corner, they would advise you to just simply ultimately be happy as they see it. They would press you along a hedonistic path of pleasure only and have no sense of pleasing God. Your purpose in life will be at cross purposes. They cannot be your trusted counselors, your closest closest advisors and those that you trust with the deepest of questions and struggles in your life. They cannot be. And just a simple matter of application this morning, some of you need to consider who are closest to you, who advise you, who counsel you in your ways. The Bible says it cannot be those who don't share your faith. The second uh, feature here of a Blessed man. Not only is he careful with the counsel that he considers, he's careful with the conduct that he practices. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take. And so we see again the progression of this parallelism from just walking casually in their counsel now to standing in their way. Uh, Which is not to mean that you've gotten in their way, but you are now practicing those things that they practice. Their behaviors have become your behaviors. Your life is beginning to resemble the world's and its patterns. And so the wise man is one who will discipline himself to keep away from foolish advice and foolish actions. The wise man knows that the fool is simply, and foolishness in general, is simply the result of slow and steady compromise. I love what uh, Chuck Swindoll has said. I have it in your notes here from the book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity. He says, sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It's just a progression, right? A slow and steady progression to an outcome. As the old expression goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? I want to illustrate this with uh, something that happened to me when I was a little boy. This story came to mind as I was preparing for this week. Uh, I grew up in the high desert, Southern California. I think most of you guys know that. Felt a little like this outside. Uh, 
one hot summer day, uh, my mom and my sister were out. I don't know what they were doing, running errands or something, and my dad was home watching me. I was bored. And so I went to him and said, hey, Dad, can I see if there's anything on TV? And he said, sure, just, you know, make sure it's nothing, you know, don't be there watching a soap opera or something like that. Oh, yeah, come on, Dad, of course, whatever. So off I went, turn on the TV, I'm flipping through channels, you know, Bonanza, Little House, Wheel of Fortune, you know, here, you know, just rolling through these things I don't really care to watch. And I come across, of all things, of course, soap opera. Then I pause for a second, and I'm, and I'm sitting here really to scoff at it, right? How absurd. What's with the dramatic, you know, music in the background here? And then, wait, why did she say that? That was interesting. Oh, why did he do that? You know, and now I'm, I'm watching to kind of get a sense of this so I can really impugn it, you know, and just be aghast at what's going on here. And I'm, it's just going on and on. And next thing I know, I'm 20 minutes into the program, right? And right about then, my dad comes walking by. And he's like, what are you doing, you know? I specifically told you, don't watch a soap opera. And I was like, yeah, how did I get here, you know? And I'm not really watching. It's more like I'm scoffing from a distance, dad, you know? This is my own self-righteousness going on here. How easy it is to just simply walk by something and then we engage in it in a little and pretty soon we're fully entangled, right? The wise man disciplines himself from the counsel he considers and from the conduct that he practices. And the third feature here is he's careful with the company that he keeps, He's careful with the company he keeps. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. See, now the progression has gone all the way to just casually hearing their counsel, to imitating some of the things that they do. Now we're at home in their living room, right? We're at home with all of who they are. Their thoughts, their attitudes have become our own. Uh, the mocker here is, is commonly referred to in the wisdom book synonymously with the fool. The foolish man, someone who is unteachable. He stirs up strife and insults. The fool is the one person in life who is drowning slowly and steadily and he's happy to take you with him, right? Drowning victim looks for someone to pull down. Uh, the good news here in the psalm is this, that all of this is avoidable. The Bible tells us that we will be happy and we will be blessed if we do so. That God has fundamentally called us to a different manner of living, avoiding this kind of collusion with the world. Uh, I want to illustrate this one other way. You, you'll appreciate this. This is just too good a story not to tell. I'm probably telling it again, but that's what we do as pastors. We tell our same stories over and over again. Um, when I was about 12 or 13, again, in the high desert, I had this neighbor, uh, Eric, we had the same name, but right next door to me. Uh, Eric was not a Christian. I was trying to influence him for the Lord, trying to bring him to church and youth group and different things, and uh, he was trying to influence me to whatever he was passionate about at that particular time. And one day, Eric and I were riding our BMX bikes around around the block, and so we're on the next street over, and we ride by this house that has um, kind of been boarded up on the front because there was a fire in it. And so the roof had partially burned off. And, you know, for two boys in the middle of the summer who have nothing better to do, that was just too much. So, you know, this is kind of like this Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn moment, you know. So we're just pulled right over. And, 
And it didn't, you know, we felt awkward about just being right out in front of this house with our bikes looking at it. So we decided we should go around back. <laughs> that would be the right thing to do. <laughs> so around back we go and we kind of stash our bikes and then, and then, oh, look at that. The sliding glass door is open. Interesting. And uh, so we wander in and we're looking around and, um, you know, this place is partially burned. But then, then we're starting to get uncomfortable because there's other things going on here. There's pictures on the wall and some of their stuff is still there. And you realize, I'm in somebody's home. I'm not just in a place that burned. You know what I mean? And you started to have that conscience issue about, I don't think I should be here. Uh, And then all of a sudden, you start hearing this loud whoop. Whoop. And we're thinking, I don't, what is this, you know? And it's getting louder and louder and more and more frequent. And then it starts getting windy outside. It's just very weird. And all of a sudden, something comes right overhead. And we look up, and there is the sheriff's helicopter right over the house, and he can see us inside, and we can see him because the roof has been burned off. So now we're standing here like, <sighs> you know, <laughs> what? So we did what, you know, kids should do. We ran, right? <laughs> Not really. Don't do that. Uh, but we did. We ran outside, and we hopped on our bikes, and I remember Eric and I, this just this vivid memory of both of us on our BMX bikes, just cranking for all we're worth, side by side, going down the road. And, and this helicopter is chasing us. <laughs> He's right over top of us. And I, I don't know how the pilot landed that thing eventually or didn't crash it because he must have just been laughing his head off. <laughs> They've got the siren blaring every now and then and yelling stuff at us. I have no idea because all I could hear was whoop, 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 you know. <laughs> and I'm just like riding down the road side by side with Eric thinking, how did I get here? We were just looking at a house and now I'm being chased by the police. We get to the end of the road and Eric goes to the left and I went to the right and I, I went home. He was, you know, a more savvy criminal than I was. He went and hid somewhere else. I went right home and uh, I stashed my bike and I went into my bedroom. I remember laying down on the bed thinking they're going to come get me. They're going to haul me off. And I just laid there in fear for hours. Uh, but it really became a defining moment in my relationship with Eric because he, you know, I loved him, I cared for him, he was my friend, but he was on a different path than I was on. And, and when we parted ways there, we really did part ways in our relationship as well. I still saw him, still cared for him, but it, we didn't spend that kind of time together anymore. Uh, the last I saw Eric, um, he had uh, been arrested for breaking and entering and stealing things. Imagine that. Um, Uh, He was, uh, his girlfriend was expecting, and uh, he was waiting for his arraignment. He was going to be going to jail. Uh, And he asked me if I would come over and pray for his unborn baby and and pray for his future. So I graduated from college, and that's when I saw him. I came home. I was packing my stuff up to leave. And I went over, and I prayed with Eric. And I left uh, a couple days later. That was the last I saw him. I don't know where he is. I don't know where he is. Our, Our lives took different paths. Um, and so, you know, it's a funny story, but I'm grateful for that moment because it defined my relationship with him. The wise man is careful with the company he keeps. And, and there are some relationships you'll have to decide against. Out of your love, you may try to influence them for Christ, but there, came, there may be a, po- a point in time where you realize I'm not an influence in their life and they're pulling me away from the Lord and I have to change my company. I have to limit my relationship because of the influence. It's going the wrong way. Well, the first portion of the psalm, first few verses here, talk to us about the negative things, things that we have to disassociate with. But then we come into the second part here and, we're, and we see the things that we are to engage in. Blessed is the man 
who loves and lives from the word of God. And this is the central point, the central theme of the psalm here. Verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The Psalm 1 man delights in the word of God. He delights in it. And I want to ask you a question this morning. What do you delight in? What, what puts a twinkle in your eye and sort of lifts your countenance and quickens your step, gets your pulse going, gets you excited, gets you enjoying things? What do you delight in? Maybe you delight in a good summer day, yeah? Or a good four-wheeler trail, that's me. Maybe you delight in a really good, finely cooked meal that somebody else made, right? <laughs> uh, Maybe a really good vacation, restful time, great recreation, great weather, fun people. Maybe you delight in the end of school. How about that? Anybody? Yeah. Maybe you delight in your children and seeing them grow and seeing their successes and seeing them learn. What do you delight in? The Psalms one man, the man who is blessed, delights in the law of the Lord. He delights in the word of God. He loves it. He's thrilled by it. He can't keep his mind off it. When he opens the pages of scripture, he is as delighted with that as he is with anything. He delights himself in it. He chooses to delight himself in it and cultivate that affection. Uh, We're not just talking about a Sunday morning message uh, or something like that. We're talking about you cultivating a heart and affection for the word of God. Something that you would think about throughout everyday activities. Um, the phrase here, it, it says uh, uh, that he meditates on this day and night. Uh, meditation is a word that we, we need to disinfect a little bit. Because as our world uses meditation, it speaks about emptying our mind of something. You know, we're supposed to go into some sort of hypnotic trance where we're emptying our minds of thoughts and concerns to attain some sort of peaceful state of euphoria which is just really ignoring the world as it is, right? That's what meditation is today. When the Bible uses meditation, it's talking about not emptying our mind of stuff. It's talking about filling our mind and focusing on the goodness of the word of God. It's an intake. It's nourishing on. For those of you who like coffee, okay? Uh, One of my wife's favorite ways of um, making coffee is is a French press method. And so she... She puts the grounds in the, in the carafe there, and then she pours in the boiling water, and there it is, steeping. All the goodness being extracted from the bean. And it sits there for a few moments before she presses it down and separates the two. That's biblical meditation. We take the word into us and we let it steep. We nourish ourselves on it. We think about it. We discuss it. We question it. We pray it over. It's alive and well within us. And the passage says that we do this night and day. This, is, this, this night and day um, phrase here is uh, mirism, which is a, a sort of a poetical device, which is when we state the extreme opposites, what we're meaning is everything in between. We do it all the time. I looked high and low for my keys. That means I looked everywhere, right? She was decked out from head to toe. doesn't just mean that she had some pretty hair and nice sandals, right? It means the, the whole ensemble was lovely, right? And so the same thing is here. He, he meditates on this day and night. It is with him all day. 
One commentator said this, meditation is to reading what digestion is to eating. It's with us. Feeding on it, feasting on it. And so again, this first section here, it really talks to us about neither our advisors nor our conduct nor our attitude should be derived from the world. Our, all of these things, the righteous man, the man who is blessed, the man who is really well off, is the one who focuses his life on the word of God and drinks deeply from it. Third point here, we will reap what we sow. And here we're given this really a beautiful picture uh, from the psalm of what it looks like when we will base our life on the word of God. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now I got to stop here for a second because I imagine that you, uh, many of you like me can almost be frustrated by the picture here, especially the last line. Whatever they do prospers. Do you always find that to be true in your life? I don't. Uh, in fact, I think there are many times when I'm, I, I know I'm not a perfect person, I don't do everything right for sure, but there are times when I'm trying hard and I'm meaning well and I'm trying to follow the Lord and I look around me and I think, my life is not prospering. The things that I had hoped to see come to fruition are not. I feel frustrated. Um, so what's going on here? And I think one of the reasons that this passage even exists is uh, not just to be a sort of a cheap Pez dispenser uh, encouragement, you know. I think it's something that we have to remind ourselves and to remind one, of, one another of that this is generally true. Or maybe even the more accurate statement is this is eventually true. Okay. Uh, in general, the wise man is characterized by success. The prosperity of the righteous is a gift from God, but it's a byproduct of wise living. There are absolutely exceptions to this. And I really appreciate and find comfort in the subtlety of the text which says, which yields its fruit when? In season. It yields its fruit in season. It explicitly states that it's in season that the righteous way of life pays its dividends. In other words, and here's maybe a catchy, humorous way to think about it and maybe to remind yourselves of it. It ain't fruity all the time. Okay? Let's say that. Sometimes we just need something simple uh, that we can remind our spouse or our friend or whatever. It's not fruity all the time. The fruit of a righteous life comes in season. In season. In fact, it's, it's interesting, but it's... I was just talking with someone earlier today who was rejoicing over this warm weather we're having so early. And they were commenting that their apple trees that they cultivate typically blossom in the second week of June, but they're already blossoming now. And it, the interesting thing is that as the heat and the sun and all this intensity comes, what it will do is press out of this tree its fruit. And the same is true of the righteous man who guides his life by the word of God. In season, the intensity over time will be pressed out and the goodness will come and the fruit will be there. It's in time. It's not every moment of every day successively without any aberration. Fourth here, we're invited to take a look at the way of the wicked. Uh, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. And I, what I appreciate about this is the psalmist says, hey, let's consider the alternative. 
let's almost put ourselves in, in the position of the life of the wicked person. And let's see where that takes us. Uh, and, and one thing that's important here is when we see this phrase wicked man, it doesn't mean that this is a grossly evil person or that they're as bad as they could be, that all that they do is always wrong all the time. Uh, it's used throughout the wisdom literature specifically to refer to one who is not in a covenant relationship with the Lord. They're, they're doing their own thing. They're living for themselves. And they might even do really good things, in fact. Uh, they may give to charity. They may be the best parents. They might even recycle, you know. <laughs> Maybe they even adopt cats. I mean, we're, you know. No. no. <laughs> And so it's not that they do every evil kind of thing. It's that they're outside of a covenant relationship with God. That's who they are. And God is saying, even the best of their actions here has no eternal merit. And he compares them with chaff, the empty shell of grain. They're likened to an empty shell. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but sort of the practice of harvesting grain in the ancient world was to, to thresh it out. So you'd have a pile of grain and you would thresh it out and you would scoop it all up in like a blanket or something and toss it in the air on a windy day. And the wind would take all of that superfluous chaff, the extra stuff, and just blow it away so that what was left was the goodness of the grain. The wicked person who is outside of a covenant relationship with God is likened to the worthless chaff that is just blown away. That's the picture. So consider their ways. This is the outcome. And finally, the psalmist invites us to live in light of judgment. In other words, we ought to let the end of all things influence the way we live our life now. Live from the end forward. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. I was talking with Aiden the other day, uh, my oldest son, who is a teenager now. He's 13, unbelievable. Um, and it's been really fun as he's reading the, the scriptures more and more to talk with him about what he's encountering and what he's finding interesting. So he was telling me about this verse the other day in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9, and he was just thrilled about it, which was really fun because it was a verse that I as a kid found and thought was great too. So anyways, just kind of a fun moment for a dad. But it says this, you who are young, be happy while you're young and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Oh, (laughs) what a great setup, huh? I love that. What a great passage. It too invites us, live from the end. You're going to stand before the Lord. Do you want to stand before him based on your good efforts and good intentions or do you want to stand before him knowing that Christ died for your sins and that all of your sins were punished in him and you stand before him righteous? I want the latter because my best of works are like chaff. Worthless. They're blown away. So we're reminded at the end we will face a judgment. Hebrews tells us that every man is appointed to die once and after that to face judgment. Blessed is the man who listens to the word, not to the world. One question to ask you in closing. Where are you planted? Where are you planted? You got two feet firmly in the world? 
accepting its values, listening to its counsel, enjoying its ways? Or are you firmly planted in the word of God? You will grow where you're planted. Let's pray. Father, sometimes when we're preaching, we seem to arrive at many of the same applications over and over and over again. Read the Bible. Worship. Pray. And keep good company. And yet, God, these are the fundamentals that will keep us grounded in a life that is pleasing to you. They will protect us. I thank you for the revelation of your word. Though you are a God that is high and lifted up and transcendent, you have accommodated yourself to us by even revealing who you are in human words and human language. And you, by your grace, sent your son who took on human skin and who took into him our sins, that those who would profess faith in him and ask for forgiveness and live their lives as followers of him might be saved, that we might receive the greatest exchange in the history of the world. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. God, may we be a people who plant ourselves firmly in the word of God, that we might be like that tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season. Give us patience in the seasons of life when the fruit's not coming. Help us to remind one another of the general outcome of living wisely and the eventual outcome of standing face to face before our God. Help us to be people of the word and not of the world. We pray in Jesus' name.